1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just Sure, sure. The only reason she babysits is to have Halloween. <laughs> okay, lady. Come on out. He came home. Oh, 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcasting world my friend, Trentus Magnus. Hey, what's happening? Hey, not much, not much. I'm uh, happy to be here. I'm happy that, uh, you know, we were able to find some so find some time to do this because, uh, you know, I've been out of this for a while. This is the uh, first podcasting that I've been able to do or for that matter, really wanted to do, and at this point, over a year. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good to be here. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm very happy that you, uh, you know, just to, to pull behind the scenes, Trent sent me a message, and I leapt all over it by saying, hey, let's get together and talk. Uh, and really, he came up with kind of the simplest idea you you can and yet one that we hadn't gotten to yet, which is just surprising. Uh, he asked me that if, you know, with Halloween coming up, did we ever review Halloween? And <laughs> the answer was no. So uh, we decided let's let's do that now. Uh, and I think, you know, I'd like to keep us primarily on that film, but I don't think we're going to be able to help but to occasionally drift off into the franchise. I don't really want to go too deeply into any of the other movies of the franchise, only because you never know. Next year, I'm going to have to look for a movie to do on Halloween, and it may be one of those. Uh, so I want to kind of keep it mostly to the 78 film. But like I said, where comparison or uh, storylines or retcons start to become important, you know, feel free to wander. Will do. So now I can tell you, being... I guess, once again, forced to show my age, I saw Halloween when it was a new movie in the movie theater. And it really did scare me at the time. That was in 1978, and I just, for whatever reason, my clearest memory is in 1981 when they came out with the sequel, Halloween 2, I remember reading in the newspaper about, you know, how they were making it and it was going to come out, and that got me thinking back to the original Halloween from 1978 and how just well made it was, despite the fact that it had an incredibly low budget. And it really, I, I really do think this, this movie is nearly perfect for what it is. I, I don't know. Now, that's, that's without you and I having discussed at all any aspect of what our our opinions are of it. So now I'm curious, having thrown that gauntlet down, what do you think? <clears throat> well, I mean, I've got kind of um, a weird and meandering history with this uh, with this entire franchise, but specifically for the 1978 film, I actually didn't see it until I was a and I, I want to say I was 18. I was a senior in high school, and <clears throat> I'm not trying to you know, bring the room down or for that matter, gross anybody out. But, um, I, w I was stuck at home. I was in this kind of enforced stalemate. Um, I, I had, uh, I'd been diagnosed with, uh, mono and I, I couldn't go to school. And when you have that kind of, uh, an illness, like as bad as I had it, you know, the fever is just so high that you don't get to sleep. For days, sometimes, and so you've got—I mean, you suddenly you have a you you have a complete appreciation for the fact that there are 24 hours in one day. You are very keenly aware of that, whereas before it's more like an interesting sort of trivial footnote, you know. 
Mm. So you you watch a lot of movies, and back then the slogan was, it's a blockbuster night. Well, every night was a blockbuster night because I had legit nothing else nothing else to do. So I kind of embarked on this sort of cinema quest of wanting to see all these movies that for whatever reason I hadn't made time for or I hadn't gotten around to or just whatever. And by the time I sat down and watched OG Halloween, I'd seen other of the Halloween movies, others of them. And so everyone said, you know, hey, this is the best. This thing's a classic. You're going to love it. It, I mean, it's like legit suspenseful and all this stuff. Watched it. And that first viewing, maybe I'm going to disappoint some Halloween fans here, but don't worry. I'm going to redeem myself. But that, that first viewing, it's like, it was kind of like watching Citizen Kane in a way, like in the same way that I didn't. Well, that, but it's just, I I didn't get it. You know, like I didn't understand Citizen Kane. It's like, I don't see what the fuss is all about with this movie. And it was kind of the same thing with, with Halloween where it's good, but it's, it's just like, it seemed like there was a movie out there that everybody was talking about that I just didn't see. And, You know, with the benefit of time, with hindsight, with maturity, um, I would say kind of a stronger appreciation for the horror genre. I I don't want to give anything away right now, but let's just say I've got a very different opinion of this movie now as compared to when I was 18 and I was on all of those antibiotics. I was sleep deprived and all that stuff. Uh, I I view the movie very differently now, suffice it to say. I, I do... In, in a weird kind of way, for a, a movie this cheap, it seems weird to call this a masterpiece. And yet, I'm kind of at a loss for any other way to put it. So, there you go. Well, you know, the, you know, when when you say masterpiece, you know, my first thought of masterpiece is not in cinema. My first thought of masterpiece would be, you know, with actual physical artwork. Mm-hmm. And you can, if you think about it from that perspective, you can kind of think to yourself, well, there's a lot of different modalities that people, you know, perform their artwork in clay, marble, uh, you know, oil paints, whatever. Uh, and some of them are expensive and some of them aren't, but that is never the distinguishing fact in the quality, uh, of the, of the artist or the talent of the artist itself. And I think sometimes when you have a low budget situation, uh, what the creative mind behind it, in this case, John Carpenter, does with that low budget is really putting their talent on on display. Uh, You know, I I think anybody who listens to me knows I I can truly appreciate the blockbuster movies, uh, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, Avengers Endgame or, or something along those lines. But sometimes there, the subtlety is totally overtaken by the uh you know by the blockbusterness by the special effects and things like that 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 are uh being presented before you uh in it with a movie like this i mean i truly think you know we're getting really the bare bones we're getting a, a horror movie that's based upon the story that's based upon the acting that's based upon the setting of a mood and that's based upon the actual direction to create tension. 
you know, there is there is nothing in this movie that's okay. You know, we're going to have a giant explosion and the special effects are going to dictate uh, where we're going to go or anything like that. So this movie is going to sink or swim based upon the skill with which it's put together. Uh, and in this instance, just to to clarify, you know, it's it's 1978 money, so it would be more now. Uh, but the budget is listed on Wikipedia as three, somewhere between 300 and 325 thousand dollars. Now I don't, I haven't done the uh, inflation calculator on that, but I would suspect that's somewhere in the range of three million dollars now. Yeah, that sounds right. I could see that. So, and actually, you know what? That's a, you. You bring up a good point. I wouldn't have actually thought to phrase it in quite that way, but my understanding of how this movie came together basically john carpenter was sort of tapped on the shoulder and said hey we want to make a movie of some kind this is the budget and so he wrote a movie he and deborah hill they wrote a a a script knowing that okay well these are the lines that we have to color inside of and let's just work with that and so as a result, they have something that is obviously it's achievable on the budget, on the money that they had to work with. And frankly, I think is the better for it. I don't think that this would have been in 1978 dollars. I don't I can't promise you that we would have as good a movie if this thing had cost five million dollars in 1978 money as it uh, as good as it is in the the budget range that it has now. So that's a really good observation on your part, and thank you for pointing that out. Now, I, I, I find it interesting, you know, it, 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 as as I look at these movies and I and I try to critique them, uh, you know, I, I look to other people's uh, way of you know providing critique for movies, mm-hmm. and I, sometimes I find it fascinating. Uh, one one thing that I, I've heard over the years, and I don't remember where I saw it. But I, I saw a, a well-known film critic. I, again, I don't remember who it was. But he said something to the effect of, once the movie is created, whatever you observe in it, that's what it is. In other words, if you see that so-and-so is a Christ figure in a movie, whether the writer actually intended that or not, that's what it is. And I always thought, that's kind of dumb. In my mind, I thought that was dumb. Because if the writer didn't intend him to be a Christ figure, and maybe you can do a correlation to try and show why you think he is, but clearly that wasn't the writer or the director's intent, and therefore you shouldn't be forcing your opinions on that person. Right. That's at least my perspective on it. And and, and I found it like I found it bothersome, quite honestly, when I when I read that. Uh, in well, in this instance, I've seen uh, critique where they tried to create a uh, an image where you know Michael is punishing sex that that's his goal in the movie whereas John Carpenter has come out and said no I really wasn't trying to say that I was just trying to show what I in my mind thought typical teenagers at that age group in this kind of town would be like I wasn't trying to show that oh anyone that that was promiscuous uh, you know was going to get killed uh, so so. Yeah, you can you can kind of have that view of it, but you can't impose it on John Carpenter because that wasn't his intent. Well, um, and and you know, fair enough. There is a there, there is actually a lot of scholarly debate about that sort of thing. Um, they call it the death of the author, 
where um, a work is made and then it's made public. And then after that, people are going to impose on it what they want. And one of the uh, one of the kind of good examples of that that I that I can think of that I think a lot of people would probably relate to when um, the original Star Wars movie came out and it was released in the Soviet Union. It had a kind of a limited release because originally, I don't know, the Politburo, somebody, decided, yeah, we're going to go ahead and release this movie. And I guess they didn't actually watch it, but then they did watch it. And they thought, this is anti-communist propaganda. And that is clearly not, or I say clearly, I, I don't think that's necessarily what George Lucas had in mind when he wrote Star Wars. But nevertheless, some nitwit from the Politburo saw an anti-communist or at least perhaps anti-Soviet messaging in that, and they responded accordingly. And it's one of those things where, depending on how much you, how like uh, meta-textual you want to get with Star Wars, you know what? They may actually have a leg to stand on. You know, in terms well, of well, see, I, their, I can go both ways on that discussion though, because I could say. If you want to, if you have, the, if you see it and you think people could get this message, and therefore you don't want to release it in the Soviet because of that, yeah, that that makes sense. But if you see it and you say, well, I know that's the message George Lucas was trying to send, well, now you're probably overstepping your <laughs> your, your bounds as far as determining. Okay, it. no, that and and that's that that's a fair response. I, I I'll agree with that. The um. Anyway, I, I at least wanted to throw all that out there. No, the, I, it's I, it's certainly food for conversation. Well, the um, I, I actually rewatched this movie the other night as prep for uh, this show that we're doing right now, and one of the things that again, not for the first time, you understand, but again, struck me is well, actually there were many of them, um, but probably the fact um, that well, I, I can't say fact, but my opinion is that. Michael Myers, say whatever you want about the other movies, but Michael Myers in this movie, if you ask me, this is him at his most menacing, his most intimidating, and just his all-around scariest. And in this movie, and because context does kind of matter here, in this movie existing in a vacuum, he has no motive. He just goes from house to house. He's knifing people. He's just having a, a great old time killing people. And you don't get into this agenda that he might have. Why is he going after certain people or, 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 or what? And for me, I mean, first off, I think Michael Myers is one of the great movie villains of all time. But specifically the fact that in this movie, forget everything else, just in this one movie – there, there isn't um, a reason for him to do what he's doing. He's doing this because, well, if you want him to be an escaped mental patient, then he's an escaped mental patient. If you want him to be the physical embodiment of evil and death, then he can be that, some kind of a supernatural figure. But the point is, just all around, I find him to be at his most disturbing and his most effective in this movie. And I at least wanted to throw throw that your way you know i guess without necessarily getting further into the other movies than you want to get 
specifically the characterization of Michael Myers as we see him in just this one movie? Like, where are you coming from that? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And, and this is where I was talking earlier where, yeah, I don't want to talk too much about the other movies, but I think you need to at least to some extent. Because as they went on, and, you know, Michael Myers has appeared in many movies by now, uh, and you're only going to get more and more two-dimensional if you don't give him some sort of a motivation and backstory. So, you know, they, they quickly retconned uh, Laurie Strode to be his sister or, you know, his long-lost sister, and that was his motivation in going after her. Uh, you know, there's things about that that don't make total sense as far as why he would have uh, reacted in the way he did towards other people in the movie, but that's, you know... What, it is what it is. Uh, I do agree with you that, that in this movie he is, in my opinion, more menacing than he is in any other sequel or remake or anything else that they've ever done with him. Uh, and part of it is because, and again, it's, you know, it's your own interpretation of what he is. Uh, but, you know, I, I see him almost as kind of like a force of nature in this movie. It, it, he doesn't have a motivation. He just is what he is. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we do get some, uh, you know, inkling into to John Carpenter's mind, I think, uh, through Dr. Loomis, who, who calls him the evil. You know, so, you know, he is seeing him as the living embodiment of evil in this movie. Uh, at least, you know, Dr. Loomis is. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's all really well handled in this. And. You know, we'll get into the, you know some of the more subtleties of the movie, I think, and you know, in a moment. But, but I think that is something where it is very strong in how it's portrayed in this movie. Is, like I said, the, the force of nature thing, the the fact that he just can't be stopped. You know, everything that happens. There's there's scenes in there where you know where he drops pretty easily, but he always just gets right back up. And it's it's just you know it gets to the point where it just keeps building and building as the movie goes on, and and I just I think it's ter- tremendous I really do. Yeah, I, I do as well, and I I've I've always kind of liked the fact that the final moment with Michael Myers that we get in the movie, he basically gets uh, blasted six times and then he falls off of a house from the second story lands on the grass flat on his back now you would think that getting shot six times i mean yeah there are people that survive that but i mean come on and then he falls off of a house from the second floor people survive that but i mean come on and then the fact that he is apparently strong enough uh that instead of just laying on the grass and bleeding out he's Again, however literally you want to you want to take this, he's at least strong enough that he can pick himself back up and leave the scene without dying right there. And you know, the fact is, it is theoretically possible for a human to survive all of that, but it's just your odds are not very good. And the ambiguity about it is, if you want him to be human, then he is. But if you don't want him to be, if your interpretive model requires him to be something not entirely human you've got plenty to work with and i like that because um one of the reasons that i've just never been a a a big nightmare on elm street or friday the 13th fan i mean i enjoy those movies but I, i don't consider myself to be a fan of them is eventually they both well eventually in the case of friday the 13th right from the jump in the case of nightmare on elm street 
those are supernatural figures, and the narrative makes no bones about that. And for me, you kind of lose something when you know that you're up against some kind of superpowered or paranormal being. You're only going to have a certain kind of success, whereas with Michael Myers, the ambiguity and the mystery was always that was always the real appeal to me. You know, in a weird kind of way, I would almost want to compare him to the pulp character, The Shadow, where the minute you get too specific with that character, you lose something, you know? And I mm. think the same thing applies with Michael Myers, where, I mean, I understand if you're going to make subsequent movies about the guy, you got to do something, you know? And certain of the movies wanted to take him in a very supernatural direction. Uh, the Rob Zombie movies perhaps wanted to take him in a in a very specifically human direction. Um, he's a gigantic beef bus of a human being, but still, he is a human being. And the minute you get too much one way or the other, I think it it just gets a little too something. And that is a balance that John Carpenter got so perfect in this movie. I can actually kind of understand where he's coming from, that he didn't want to direct another one. He never really wanted to write another one, but he did write another one. But he definitely never directed another one. And I can kind of understand that because it's like it was hard enough to get it right once. Asking me to do it again about a story that I already think is done and finished and it's been told anyway, it, it just it makes sense to me. And so I've never begrudged Carpenter not wanting to direct another one of these things because – if I directed this movie, I might have actually retired after this because it's like, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get better than this, you know? And the fact that yeah. he didn't, well, I, anyway, so I, there you go. Yeah, I, I, see, I, I, I'm famous, or I don't know if I'm famous, but I've, I've, men, I've mentioned many, many times that I'm a, uh, I'm a sucker for sequels uh, because if I see a character that I like, if I link to a character or a story, uh, I, I become insatiable and I always want more. And that's not always the best way to be because, you know, I mean, Halloween, I think, is a prime example where they've been trying to catch that lightning in a bottle again for 40 something years now. And they still haven't never matched. Excuse me. They've never matched the original uh, as far as quality goes. And, and I don't think they ever will. So oh, no, you know, it, it, it's a battle for number two. There's no question. This is de the other movies. It's a battle for which one can be second best because we know what the best is, don't we? So. Yeah, and I think I think you know again. I, I don't want to go too much into comparisons, but if you compare this to Halloween Two, which John Carpenter was a producer on, uh, I don't know if he had anything to do with the writing on that. I thought uh, he did. Um, actually, you know what? I've got the Wikipedia up right in front of me, so let's just uh, take a quick While you look at that, I'll, Yeah, it I'll... says uh, John Carpenter and, De and Deborah Hill writers. Oh, they did. Okay. But while this movie it's, – it's hard, hard to use this word when you consider the budget and everything. But where this movie, I think, in its creation, in its writing, in its direction, has a certain amount of elegance to it and a, and a, and a deft touch uh, and, and – <laughs> even some subtlety uh the second movie is like a sledgehammer it's not that it's not enjoyable in its own way but it's much less to me it's much a much less skillfully put together movie uh, a lot of the frightening moments there are based more on 
just making you uncomfortable instead of creating uh, suspense. Uh, things like, you know, the kid going into the hospital, having just bit into an apple with a razor blade in it. Uh, you know, that, that, that just the concept makes you uncomfortable. It makes you squirm in your seat a little bit. But it doesn't take any skill to do that. In this movie, I think there's a constant just upping of the stakes as it's going on and upping of the suspense. And, and throughout the movie, you are getting the idea that, you know, nothing's going to be able to stop this guy. Uh, and, and you don't know what his motives are. And that's part of the beauty of it is that you don't. Uh, so, you know, you, you don't gain anything by finding out his motives. It's, it's the, you know, the, the age-old debate that people have had with, you know, whether Wolverine was a better character when you didn't know any of his history. You know, that type of thing. Uh, you know, in the second one, that's when they came up with the retcon that Laurie was, was his sister. Uh, and, and again, giving this character that I see as a force of nature and actual motivation, I think takes away from that force of nature aspect of him. It makes it more of a blunt instrument. Uh, so again, I don't want to get too much into the other movies, but I think this one just has, again, I'm going to use the word elegance, elegance in its simplicity and elegance in its building up of suspense. A lot of which is due to the, incredibly simple score that John Carpenter wrote himself. Agreed. 100% agreed. Um, there, you know, when you think about it, you actually listen to that score, and I do listen to it, uh, because, let's face it, this is October, and so I do listen to it as its own thing. Um, he only composed something like, I think, like five or six themes for this movie, and he revisits them, he twists them around, he... There are variations that make each um, each instance of a given theme kind of unique and special in its own way, separate from all the other ones. And um, that, again, it, it to me, it, it just feeds into this idea that the original Halloween movie, as much affection as I may have for some other Halloween movies, this one is so unique and so special and so, in its own kind of way, so pure that, you know, I'm kind of coming at this from uh, sort of a different point of view than you are. The older I get, the less I want to have anything to do with sequels. Because, you know, you have a good idea, it was a good movie, and I think there's something to be said for just, you know what, let it go, let it be, and let's try to do something else original next time a, a good example of what i'm talking about is um first blood i adore first blood that is a great movie but when you start getting into the other rambo movies in first blood john rambo he's a he's a, a very damaged person you know and he he strikes out he does these very extreme things because he's He's a very broken man. And when you get into the sequels, it's like the broken man, it's harder and harder to find him. And what you see more of is Rambo, the action hero. Well, I, I don't want to go too much into Rambo, but I, I, the way I would describe it is, in First Blood, he is an anti-hero. And from Rambo First Blood Part 2 on, they dispensed of the anti-hero part of his personality and just went with hero. Agreed. And it, it made him a, a less sophisticated character. 
Agreed. And so I, I do agree with your assessment in that regard. Uh, and 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 I I openly admit sequels is a guilty pleasure to me with a, with just you know a few notable exceptions. It's I, I you know there's there. And I'm talking about direct sequels, not you know, not when you have a, uh, a a true franchise. You know, James Bond. I don't I don't look at the James Bond movies as sequels so much as a franchise. I don't look at the Star right. Wars movies as sequels so much as a franchise. But Halloween two, I look at as a sequel. Eventually, Halloween Absolutely. became a franchise, but at the time it was a sequel. Uh, you know, The Godfather two is one of the notable exceptions. But that, you know, obviously a sequel. Uh, right. There are so many sequels that you can point to as failures. I think probably uh, only a fraction of them that you can truly look at and say are a success. And, and even a much, much smaller fraction that you could look at and say the sequel was better than the original. Yeah, few and far between. So, yeah, yeah. I, underst- I understand the perspective on that. And I understand... Like I said, where, where sequels are a guilty pleasure for me. But I do have this weakness where if I like something, I want more. <laughs> and look, I mean, I, I completely understand that. But I watched this um, this movie starring Liam Neeson called Taken. And you know what? <laughs> that is a great movie. I dig that movie start to finish. I, I'm not going to go so far as to call it a classic, but it's definitely enjoyable. And I rewatch it, you know, every once in a while as the mood strikes. But I got to tell you, the idea of watching one of the sequels to that movie where once again somebody gets kidnapped and Qui-Gon has to go into action, it's just like I saw that once already. I'm good. You know, I don't need to see more of that. And just to show you what a hypocrite I am, I mean, I've kind of indirectly alluded to the fact that I do enjoy certain of the other Halloween movies. It's just, it's something I'm inconsistent about. I freely admit I'm a hip, I'm a hypocrite on this, but um, just to kind of tie it all back to the main point though, of Halloween 1978, there's an honesty and a purity about this movie. And honestly, I put a lot of this movie's success. I mean, look, Michael Myers is awesome, and I and I, I like that character. You know, it's the character you love to hate. You know, but a lot of this movie's success, if you ask me, really comes down to Jamie Lee Curtis, and this was her feature film debut. Mm-hmm. And the thing that works about Laurie Strode in this movie for me is that in she's the perfect foil for Michael Myers in the sense that. You know, is Michael Myers superhuman or is he supernatural or is he just flesh and blood mortal? I mean, all of those questions are kind of swirling around in your imagination. You can ask some of those same questions about Lori, where she is a shrinking violet and she does run and hide. But when Michael Myers corners her, he has a really hard time dispensing her. You know, it's not so easy as it is with the other Uh, cannon fodder in this movie michael myers takes them out pretty quick whereas laurie strode the most unlikely person in the whole movie somehow she's able to go toe-to-toe with michael myers three separate times and honestly to go toe-to-toe with him and to survive to me that's winning you know you don't need to beat him down to the floor if you just survive as far as i'm concerned you won 
And she survived all three of those encounters. And you can see at the very end where he, uh, after she pokes him with a knife and then he falls over in the closet, she uh-huh. uh, moves away and she stops just to catch her breath and, you know, just get her wits about her again. And he rises back up in this really cool, just kind of spooky moment. He just straightens up, looks over at her, and now he is done playing games. He just storms over to her, and he starts choking her. He's like, I'm ending this right now. And he didn't he didn't need more than one pass at anyone else in the movie. But usually when he killed somebody, not always, but usually, there was a little bit of cat and mouse going on. Whereas with Lori, he tried that with her twice before. And on number three, he's like, no, we're done with that. I'm just going to move in for the kill now. And I think it's anyway. So a lot of that success, like I say, it comes alternately from Jamie Lee Curtis being extremely soft. And then on the one hand, and then on the other hand, being extremely strong. And you don't see a contradiction between the two. Well, she's she's really easy to relate to. Because of the first aspect of it, she, you know, she doesn't know why this guy's coming after her. She's scared. You know, it's easy to relate to her. And then you get the second part, which is the, the inner strength, which is what we all wish we have. So she becomes so easy to become your point of view character as long as Jamie Lee Curtis pulls it off believably, which she does. You know, give I her agree. credit for the acting. But, yeah. but uh, you know, but and she's she's it's a to me it's a it's a, it's a it, it's a perfect melding of her acting, John Carpenter's direction, and John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's writing. The three of them all just mesh so well to make her, you know, the the most unlikely action hero you're ever going to see. I couldn't agree more. And you know, another popular female action hero of this same vintage, obviously, is going to be Ellen Ripley. And the thing is, the idea of a movie where Ellen Ripley goes up against um, uh, Michael Myers, there's a different dynamic at play there because she's already kind of a survivor. She's already kind of strong just because of the nature of her job. It's not a gigantic surprise when Ripley survives the first Alien movie. I mean, she needs brains. She needs strength. She needs a lot of luck. But it's not a gigantic surprise that she's able to make it where others wouldn't. It's a different dynamic with her as it is with uh, Laurie Strode, who has this this innocence about her that she just kind of wears on her sleeve. And I can kind of understand why people would look at this movie and think, oh, well, it's the it's the promiscuous ones that that uh, get the business end of Michael Myers's knife. I don't know if I completely agree with that, but I can see their argument. It's just that I think I'm seeing something in Jamie Lee Curtis's performance as Laurie. For me, it it's like it it's the counterbalance for all of that. There, she has a strength that the other ones didn't, or she mm-hmm. had uh, an intelligence that the other ones didn't. There's a for me, there's a logical kind of humanistic reason that she was able to pull through, whereas others weren't. And the thing is, what sells it is at the very end, um, as far as the characters know, Michael Myers has just gotten blasted into the next lifetime. And she's crying, she's inconsolable, and and she even asked, 
you know, was that the boogeyman? And it's everything she can do to not break down sobbing, you know. And so she's not the action hero, but she, she just had poise when she needed to have it. Right. And, again, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, mix and match the two. I'm just saying that that wouldn't work for Ellen Ripley, you know, the Laurie Strode approach. But then the Ellen Ripley ap- approach wouldn't work for Laurie Strode. And um, anyway, obviously, I love both of those characters, but it's just I look at Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie, and it's like she is just such the perfect linchpin for this movie that I don't think another actress, this movie would not be what it is if Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't get that role. All right. I'm I'm just going to throw that out there and just uh, what do you think of that? I totally agree with you on it. I, I think. You know, I mean, obviously she has the uh, the pedigree uh, between Janet Lee and uh, Tony Curtis. Uh, right. and, and if you want to even take them to the slasher movie thing, obviously Janet Lee, you know, no question with Psycho. And Tony Curtis, if you've ever seen The Boston Strangler, uh, you know, there's there's even the horror movie uh, aspect of her uh, of her pedigree. Uh, but I, I, I just think she plays the part so well. Uh, it's it's you know I mean she's done so many good things in her career Jamie Lee Curtis, but I don't know if she's ever outdone this. Uh, you know there's, there's a lot of different genres that she's appeared in and a lot of really good movies, uh, and and her, you know a lot of really good performances. But this this may you know her first may be her best. I, I just you know it, it really I think the movie does turn on that if if she was not a likable and relatable character, I don't think this movie has the same gravitas that it does. Agreed. And and, and I do think there's a large focus that's intentionally pl- placed on her. Uh, you know, obviously Michael is the, you know, what do they call him, the shape? Uh, yeah. But, but he's, you know, he's intentionally ambiguous, as we've already kind of discussed. So you're not going to focus your narrative flow on him. He's going to be you know he's more the, almost the MacGuffin, if you if you will, uh, and then the the action hero, you know, the titular action hero, not titular, but the theoretical action hero of the movie would actually be Donald Pleasance, who I want to discuss in a moment, but but he's far from an action hero in, you know, in in the way you'd think of him, and again I'll talk about him in a minute. So it because of the way that's all done, it places the focus truly with her in the in the sights. So if, if if this movie's going to rise and fall on her performance, I, I, I agree. And the what I, I on the rewatch, I, I tried to make a conscious effort to sort of compare what Jamie Lee Curtis was doing in this movie over and against the cannon fodder characters. Um, her friends that were just getting knifed, just, you know, one by one by one. And the other cast members, they're, uh, the other teenagers, you know, they're, they're good actors in their own right. You know, the 70s, it was kind of a weird time for acting anyway, you know, transitioning away from that classically trained stuff to that more sort of like gritty method kind of acting that we're more familiar with today. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, uh, PJ Souls is, she kind of, there's a little bit of theatrical, uh, theatrical Velveeta 
in her performance, which isn't bad, but um, it's just it's the sort of thing that the lead the lead actress in this movie couldn't have that. She can't be kind of silly and broad and over the top and all that. Uh, she needed to be a little bit more um, grounded, and it's one of those things. I don't know, maybe that. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is kind of benefiting from comparison because she's just on such this other level as compared to um, the other teenage uh, characters in the movie. And oddly enough, the one scene that she has with Loomis in this movie, it's like, finally, there are two equals on the screen. you know. And it's only that brief little moment at the end, but it's like, again, to kind of segue into the, the Donald Pleasance aspect of this, I said before that this movie would be a lesser work if some other actress gets the part of Laurie Strode. I'm going to say that this movie would be a lesser work if some other actor got the part of Dr. Sam Loomis. Um, um, At the risk of going too far afield, we have a comparison now, for better or for worse. You know, we have another character who, uh, another actor who has played Loomis, and it's only in the comparison that you see just how much Donald Pleasance's instincts were just right on the money with everything that Loomis is in this movie that don't necessarily exist in <clears throat> the other version. And uh, anyway, and so... And, and, and you can even keep that in mind with... I don't even, you know, we hadn't discussed this, so I don't know if you agree with me. I think Malcolm McDowell, who played Loomis in the remake, is a fine actor. Oh, yeah. I, I absolutely think he's a very good actor. And yet, his performance was didn't stand out to me the way Pleasance did. Well, he's just too much of a, he, he's just, pardon my French, he's just a little bit of a hard ass in Zombies movie. Even just the first one. Forget about the second one for a moment. Just that first one, the remake. He's he, he's played as just kind of a hard ass, and the the beauty of Donald Pleasance's performance for me is that he's he's extremely he's he's very set in his convictions. Look, this is not a human being that we're talking about. I mean, this guy is the devil incarnate, all right. And so now he has to go toe to toe with this guy, and he's scared. You know, he's nervous, he's jittery, he's jumping at shadows. And this is a guy who knows exactly what Michael Myers is capable of. He perceives a responsibility to go out there and capture him, but he's also very scared to do so. And the that dynamic of a, a character who's determined to do the right thing, but at the same time is scared out of his wits to do it, that is just such the franchise of this character in this movie where it's very easy to understand why he can kind of bark orders at everybody. He can kind of get a little bit crazy in this movie. You know, the evil is gone. Well, that's how scared he is because now he knows somewhat, you know, maybe not exactly what's going to happen, but he's got some idea of how this thing is going to is going to play out. And then when it does, it's like it validates everything that he's been saying, all of his nervousness, all of his fear and anxiety. And uh, and anyway, so there's I just I cannot say enough good things about Donald Pleasance in this movie. That, this is just such a great character. 
such a great performance, such a great actor. See, I, I've I've often looked at characters or actors portraying characters in movies and praised when someone would underplay the role. And then I've looked at other roles where they truly emote and let everything out, and I've praised that in certain films also. And then there's been times where I've criticized you know, the acting choices in that regard because it depends on the role you're playing, it depends on the movie you're in. But in this one, I think we have a situation that I cannot, off the top of my head, come up with a comparison to because I think Donald Pleasance, in his portrayal of Dr. Loomis, does both. I think there's scenes where he, he tones it down and he's just talking and he's talking about his interactions with Michael and what he is and, and all of that. And, and he's, he's almost underplaying those a little bit and it's pulling you in and it's bringing you into his understanding of that character. And then there's other points which, you know, you, you cited yourself when he's yelling, the evil is gone, you know, whatever, where he's like going totally over the top and, and, and chewing up the scenery. But feels to me like he made the right choices at the right time as to when to modulate that. Yeah, he's I think the, that's the beauty of his performance here. I, I totally agree. He's the reluctant Ahab. You know? Yes, that's a good way to describe it. Now, it's funny because Donald Pleasance is an actor who I know I've seen in many, many things, mm -hmm. but the only two besides this that really stand out in my mind are him in The Great Escape and him and you only live twice. Two very, very different performances. Uh, you know, so those, these, to me, those three movies are his. In in my mind, those are the linchpin performances. Those three, uh, and they're all very different from each other. And it shows you some of his ability to to adapt to the characters. Uh, I, I think he was terrific in this movie. I, I, you know, and and he's. You know, he's clearly a supporting role in it. He's not a star in the movie. Jamie Lee Curtis is the star. Right. He's he's supporting, and I think it, I think it would you know I I believe it was very difficult, or it would be very difficult to final to find that that balance that he had, and it's 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 in its own way similar to Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs to me, where you walk away from the movie thinking he was in a lot more scenes than he was. Right. Um, yeah, all in all, it's actually um, relatively little screen time, and um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's strange to think that he. I think he made a comment at one point uh, after this movie came out. He did it for the money. He needed the money, and I don't know if that was his lasting opinion about the character for the rest of his life, but for sure, you know this. At least to start with, this was a role he wasn't terribly invested in, and I get the idea that as time went on, um, maybe he still needed the money in subsequent movies, but I think he did ultimate, or at least I want to believe he ultimately came to respect this character that was willing to do so much you know, to protect this town from a threat that only, when you think about it, only he truly recognized there is kind of a sadness to this character that he probably went to his grave with, um, even then, no no small number of uh, of doubters, you know. And but certainly in this movie, there aren't very many people that are willing to believe him at least at first. And except Jamie Lee Curtis or Laurie Strode, you know. And um, mm -hmm. 
anyway. You know, sometimes it's interesting to see, you know, who the cho- who other choices were in the movies. Uh, in this instance, before Pleasance, uh, John Carpenter's first two choices were. It's amazing how these two just come together all the time. Peter Cushing and mm-hmm. Christopher Lee. I would have loved, in all due respect to Donald Pleasance, I would have loved to see what Peter Cushing would have done with this character. I think he would have made Dr. Loomis a more creepy character. You think so? Yeah, yeah I do. I, I think, I think uh, you know, he, he would have been... There was an earnestness to Dr. Loomis in this movie that I don't know you if you would have felt with Peter Cushing. I think with Peter Cushing you would have felt maybe Dr. Loomis has some sort of other agenda. I, that's just the way I see him playing it. Uh, like, you, you wouldn't... you wouldn't. I don't think you'd feel the selflessness that you feel from Donald Pleasance. Well, it's just... The reason I, the reason I, uh, I say that is because one of my favorite movies in the entire world is the first Hammer... Uh, Dracula movie, and in that he plays um, Van Helsing, and in a weird kind of way, I mean, there is some similarity between Van Helsing and uh, Loomis, at least in those two movies. Um, the way it's set up in uh, the Hammer movie is Van Helsing starts the movie knowing good and well exactly who and what Dracula is. There's no discovery. Everything he does in that movie is all about taking Dracula out, you know. And I regard him as he's this sort of um, erudite college professor type of Van Helsing. This is not two-fisted man of action by any mm-hmm. stretch, you know. And it's really because of that and um, Hound of the Baskervilles that have really made me think. We look again. All all due respect to Donald Pleasance, I think things worked out the way they needed to. But there's a part of me that wonders, you know, it, like out there in the multiverse, is there an Earth somewhere that Peter Cushing did end up playing this role? <laughs> and if there is, you know, how did that turn out? And See, I, I don't – I think the problem I have is what I, what I talked about with him modulating the underplaying and overplaying. I see Peter Cushing as always underplaying in this role. I see him as always trying to be a little bit more subtle and a little bit more contained. And that's why I feel like you'd always wonder about his motives. Whereas when, when need be, when, when you know, Dr. Pleasance, Donald Pleasance's Dr. Loomis goes over the top and wears his feelings on his sleeve. And I don't, I don't know if I would ever feel that from Cushing. Okay. Now, yeah, now that I do see, I, I, I'll agree with you on that. Um, he does seem to want to play things pretty pretty close to the chest. The other one um, is uh, Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. obviously. And uh, I'm a bit more ambivalent about that. I mean, there's, I guess there's a passing curiosity, like what would that have been like? But for me, he's just such a villainous actor. You know, even in roles where he doesn't, he's not really playing a villain, it's, it just seems like there's always another... There's always another layer, or there's some secret, or there's an agenda, you know, a hidden agenda. And I just, I don't know that the purity of Loomis would necessarily come across if Christopher Lee was playing the role. Like, what do you think about that? See, the thing about Christopher Lee is 
and again, I'm going to compare it to what I thought of Pleasance and where I don't think I'd feel it with Christopher Lee. With Donald Pleasance, there's an element where you looked at him and you thought, this is the guy who's going up against this unstoppable force? Really? Where, like, where Donald, Donald Pleasance showed this vulnerability as Dr. Loomis, where, where you really didn't feel like he would have a chance to to go toe-to-toe with Michael Myers. Uh, for some reason, you know, Christopher Lee would fill me with some confidence that he always had a chance to win. And yeah, I don't know that that's what I'd want to have portrayed in Dr. Loomis. It, it, as, as a uh, filmmaker, I may not have been smart enough to know that I wanted Donald Pleasance to show that weakness. I might have wanted a guy who looks like a worthy adversary, but I think the film is all the better for having a guy who doesn't. I couldn't agree more. Totally agree with that. Um, there is a strength uh, that Christopher Lee had. Honestly, it, it, the way it looks, it's not like I knew the guy, but I mean, just it looks to me that a strength that he had to his dying day, you know? Mm-hmm. And it would be, in a weird kind of way, it would almost be hard to buy him as being afraid. And... Um, Anyway, so yeah, no, that's a that's a very that's a very fair point, uh, very astute. Oh, thank you. Uh, the, the I mean, the only other actor actress that that jumps out at me, and it's not because her performance was so strong, but it's just because it seemed like she was somebody who was an actress on the rise. Uh, and I think you mentioned her earlier was P.J. Souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was in Carrie. Uh, and she was, you know, she had some parts, and even in the credits, you know, they listed her in a, you know, relatively prominent spot. Uh, that, you know, you thought she was up and coming. Uh, you know, I, I remember after this, she was in Stripes, and and you know, like it seemed like she was a star on the rise, and then she just right. kind of faded into obscurity. Uh, I thought, you know, as far as in this movie, I thought she, you know, she was adequate. She played the part well. She did what you mentioned earlier, and she created that that contradiction from. Uh, Laurie Strode, uh, but other than that, I, you know, I, I I don't know that a different actress wouldn't have done as well. Uh, the only thing you're just seeing it in, in the you know when I'm reading up on the movie, I did not know that she was at the time married to Dennis Quaid. Uh, that's news to me as well, actually. So yeah, all right, color me surprised. <laughs> so. um, interesting uh, trivia. The um, there, there is actually one other point that I that I wanted to harp on um, with this movie. Um, something else that just kind of sets it apart from a lot of other slasher movies. Namely, um, there's... I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it intelligence, but the, the cannon fodder characters in this movie, they... They're not stupid you know i'm not sure if i want to say that they're smart necessarily but they're not complete blithering idiots you know the way that they meet their end there are logical reasons why michael myers would be able to get to them at the time that he gets to them you know and it's kind of the joke that people make about slasher movies you know, it's it's uh, three in the morning, and we're at this house in the middle of nowhere out in the country, and you know, all kinds of spooky stuff is happening. I heard a strange noise outside. I better go out there and take a look. You know, there's none of that in this movie. You know, um, 
these characters in a in a certain kind of way they they really are victims you know they're not they're not uh, people that that won a Darwin award you know <laughs> and uh, more than once I've even kind of wondered you know what must Paul have been thinking you know the whole time this movie's going because we never see Paul but the whole time this movie's going on it's like this guy's entire social life is getting knifed to pieces his girlfriend's supposed to come over to his house for some you know and it's just like he gets nothing and then the, the next day you know paul goes to school and he finds out all of his friends are dead it's just i've always kind of wondered <laughs> what was paul's what was paul's day like the next day at school you know <laughs> that's that's a that's a very good question i assume it was torturous uh you know i i think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about just where this movie falls in the slasher genre Mm -hmm. because before this i don't even know if you could consider it a genre before this uh you know you had psycho you had the texas chainsaw massacre uh i know black christmas but not a hell of a lot else. So I, I don't think it really was a genre yet. So I, no. I, I really think this movie kind of created the genre, even though there were other examples before this. Because I think a lot of the other movies that came after this were trying to re- recapture the magic that this movie had. Uh, and eventually then it became, you know, all meta with, you know, Scream and trying to, you know, play with all, all the things that they've done over the years. And, in its own way, there's a Jaws-like feeling to it, where a movie caught lightning in a bottle and put everything together in such a, a good way that so many others have tried to recapture it and failed. Um, and I tend to uh, agree with that. The way I, the way I prefer thinking of these things, especially when it comes to genres or subgenres or, or, or whatever is usually you have a few early and primitive um, entries in in a given genre. I hope my chair isn't too squeaky. I apologize to any listeners, but this thing is just, it's a piece of junk. So anyway, um, you should get a few early entries in, into a given genre, but then typically what happens is there's some kind of important and explosive work that comes along and it just kind of sets the tone for what what you're supposed to do you know and in that sense i do think you know uh halloween maybe it's not genre creating but it is genre defining and if you're going to make a slasher movie before halloween you're not necessarily beholden to what Halloween did. Whereas if you're going to make a slasher movie now, even if it's to make decisions different from what Halloween did, you're still being influenced by it. Yes. And so, um, for me, what it comes down to is I don't need Halloween to be the first, but for me, it certainly is, uh, the best, you know, in terms of, uh, the slasher genre. And, uh, anyway, see, I don't know, where I could, where I, well, I can't, I can't honestly answer. You know, if you say the best of the the slasher genre, if you're going to include Psycho in that, and you say to me, which do you think is a better movie? I'm not sure. 
And it's, trust me, that's high praise for both of them. Uh, but I don't know, you know, by far those are my two top slasher movies, no question. But I don't know which one I'd put higher. There's certainly a lot of similarities, uh, not the least of which is, is the score, which we mentioned in its simplicity and how it uh, just tended to, to build more tension. Uh, but also, you know, unexpected heroes and, you know, the, the just, just there's, there's, there are a lot of things about it that, that kind of line up. Uh, and I don't know which one I'd find to be better. We've already done Psycho on this and, you know, I rated that as Jaws. And I don't hmm. think uh, it's going to be any mystery that I'm going to rate this one as Jaws as well. Uh, but, you know, it's certainly, let's just say it's at the top of its class, even if it may have, uh, if, even if it may have peers or peer. Uh, one another thing just that I think is worth mentioning before we start wrapping things up is the poster for the movie, which, you know, you forwarded me and asked me if I had ever observed uh, the face in the fist holding the knife and the body that's in the shadows. And the, the honest answer is no, I hadn't. And I'm fascinated by it now that you've pointed it out to me and I just keep looking at it. Uh, it's by an artist named Robert Gleason. And I went and right. I looked at his uh, his art page uh, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, uh, that's even remotely similar to this. Uh, his artwork is mostly city scenes. Uh, there's musicians. Uh, you know, it, it's it's just nothing that, that compares to this uh, on, on any level, really. Uh, but it's all really good artwork. Uh, I, I was unfamiliar with him, and, and I, I want to thank you for, for pointing that, that out to me and, and getting me to take a look at his art, because it just gave me another thing to check out and uh, and to be impressed by. Uh, and the poster is another thing where uh, it is, to me, impressive in its simplicity, how the knife is tur- is making the pumpkin. Uh, and and it's, it's just really, you know, it's compelling. Yeah, um, I, you know, every now and then a, a perfect movie poster <clears throat> comes along for, uh, you know, for a movie. You know, I think for um, your generation, I think maybe one of the most famous posters, later in life, you understand, but one of the most famous posters is probably, uh, it's actually a teaser poster for uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And it's just Anakin standing around in the desert with, and he's casting Vader's uh, shadow. Mm-hmm. I really like um, that type of movie poster where you have there's it, it, something that's simple and it's clean and it's unco- uh, uncluttered. It's not too busy, and you can do a lot. You know, if if you've got a talented you know, artist designing the poster, you can do a lot with a with something simple like Anakin standing in the desert, or in this case, a um, a fist gripping a knife next to a jack o' lantern. You can do a lot with that, and those are the kinds of posters that I typically gravitate toward. I've got nothing against, you know, Drew Struzan's greatest hits. I love Drew Struzan. I think he's an amazing artist. And, you know, uh, all of his posters, I don't know about all of them, but probably like the great majority of the work he ever did 
it's rightly considered to be uh, classics in this kind of weird. Let's face it, this is kind of a weird art form. Movie posters, but they are they are uh, classics in, in their own way. But I tend to prefer uh, simpler type things, like Tim Burton's po- uh, the the poster for Tim Burton's first Batman movie, which it's just the mm-hmm. symbol and that's it. And it's like, well, what else do you need? You know, and it's telling you everything while showing you almost nothing. And for me, that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that I tend to like when it comes to movie posters. I don't need a movie poster that gives away the sc- the whole store. Now, in today's world, I really don't know how relevant a movie poster really is anymore. You know, I but it's whatever the you know the point is. When it comes to um, especially this series of movies, the Halloween series, there's no question which movie's the best, and there's no question which movie has the best poster. And I'll I'll fight you to the death on that one. But as for me, <clears throat> is it Jaws? And there's just no question about it. Uh, this movie is absolutely Jaws. I'll even say that in this movie series, this is the only movie. It's Jaws. Even the best of the sequels, and there are sequels that I like, the best that they can they can aspire to is being Jaws 2, in my opinion. There's only one Jaws in this franchise, and um, I, 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 you know, it's, it's funny. I have such a strange beginning. You know, the first time I saw this movie, I was on all different kinds of medications and stuff, and, I, and my body was trying to heal. And the movie didn't make much of an impression on me, but it's one of those things that, boy, it just sticks with you. You know, like some of those visuals in this movie of Michael Myers standing next to the hedge, and then he just disappears behind it. Uh You know, there are powerful visuals in this movie that have nothing to do with showing, you know, naked bodies or lots and lots of gore or anything like that. Just kind of creepy, spooky mysterious visuals and that's that's what this movie is all about and that's one of the many things that that i love about this film so is it jaws absolutely this is jaws i have no hesitation in saying that and nor nor do i and i already said that i found it as Jaws. i just think before we wrap up i should just mention two things uh, by the way of trivia on this because uh, i mentioned the 300 to 325 thousand dollar budget uh, box office is listed as somewhere between 60 and 70 million dollars, uh, yep. which is just an incredible profit margin. Now, I assume that's, uh, you know, factoring in re-releases over the years, you know, at Halloween time and all. Uh, but just the same, it's it's just a, a, an incredible amount of money to be made by this. And then the last thing I just want to mention is, because if we don't mention it, there's going to be somebody who's listening to this says, oh, I can't believe they didn't know this, that the mask that Michael Myers wears is a William Shatner mask that they used spray paint to paint over. We know that. Yes. And it's, it's, it's a very cool-looking image, and it's iconic now in its own way. Uh, and I, I, you know, we, we didn't discuss it only because I'm not sure that there's anything more to say to, about it than that, but it is a very cool image. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I just, I'll take a minute again to thank you for coming on with me. I really enjoyed having a chance to chat with you again, and hopefully we get to do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Well, hey, there's a Halloween too, right? So there you go. <laughs> or, or maybe we'll go off into a different genre. It's been, well, so so far we've done uh, 
we did do Behind the Mask, so we, we have touched on this genre a little bit. We did the Lord of the Rings animated movie. We did uh, The Bank Job. Uh, yeah. I don't know if we did any I others. typically prefer... Yeah, I don't think so. And I usually preferred going a little bit more off the beaten path when we do these shows together because I figured, well, how many people are beating down your door to talk about The Bank Job, right? But no, you you know, this is one of those times... <laughs> Yeah, but this, you know, Halloween, you know, when when you actually suggested coming onto the show to talk about it, number one, I was flattered, and I do appreciate you extending me that invitation. But it's like, you know what, maybe it's time I did throw my hat in the ring for like a big and important movie that a lot of people know, and probably a lot of people are going to listen to this episode, and hopefully we didn't ruffle any feathers or upset anyone. Um, you know, I wear my affection for this movie on on my sleeve. And, um, you know, for a movie I didn't think I would ultimately have all that much to say about. Turns out I had a lot to say, so uh, thank you. This was, a, this was a lot of fun, and I look forward, whether it's Halloween 2 or whether it's anything else, I look forward to coming back at some point, so thank you. I look forward to having you, and thank you as well. And just to, to touch on your point, if we did ruffle anybody's feathers, uh, I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to hear why, it, you know, what, what about it you disagree with this or it. And, you know, I, I, I am never offended by somebody who thinks differently than me i just ask that you say it respectfully but other than that by all means please let me know if you disagree uh you know or if you if you have any interesting points on it you know email us yeah send uh, me your hate mail yeah send me all <laughs> your hate mail uh there is no hate mail there's no such <laughs> thing no such thing <laughs> but thanks again for coming on trent and thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you in two weeks Does anybody live here? Well, not since 1963 when it happened. Every kid in Haddonfield thinks this place is haunted. They may be right. Seen inside. 
<laughs> you must think me a very sinister doctor. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I do have proof. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. I'll check back in an hour.